Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, that's not a TV show. But it is. But it is. It It is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams. Other than a Viewmaster, you download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Uh, as always, I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me also, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? I uh, can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are still recording in lockdown over Zoom, so apologies for any potential audio inconsistencies or hiccups we have on this um and hopefully we don't have too many because we've got a very fun guest on we have mr chip proser and we're going to be talking mainly about an unmade script of his called interface uh and at the end of that conversation we're also going to touch a little bit on a tv movie sequel to big trouble in little china that he worked on Uh, how are you today chip i'm good how are you Pretty good. <laughs> nice to be here. Nice to be here. Nice to be anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's let's just before we get into interface, let's uh, learn a little bit more about you, Chip. Can you tell us how you got into the industry and just sort of what what your life was even like leading up to interface? Yeah. Well, I was born, so that's how I got into it. <laughs> yeah. uh, my father was a Broadway producer. My mother was a starlet at Fox. Gregory Peck's first screen girlfriend. And what she, movie was that? Uh, Keys to the Kingdom. She played Nora, a an Irish girl that was his girlfriend, when he decided to join the priesthood and move to China. If you knew mom, that was the move to make. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I, yes, yeah, so I started off, I've been 
familiar with every aspect of show business because I used to live with my father on Broadway and uh, Vegas and Hollywood and so forth. And then I went to film school at uh, BU uh, and became a cameraman for some reason, uh, mainly because no one wanted to learn how to run the camera. So, and we all had to do a film to graduate. So that was a problem. Yeah. <laughs> they were all hiding out from the, from the war. Nobody wanted to run the camera. So I opened the camera one day and I saw a white line in it. And I figured, well, if you put the film down that white line and through all those little gizmos, it might run out the other end and you get an <laughs> image. Turns out I was right. I was brilliant. <laughs> uh, so I wound up shooting everybody's student film because no one else wanted to figure that white line thing out. So I became a director cameraman. And then for uh, 10 years or so, I bummed around Boston shooting various things, sold, sold cameras, started a film school. And then I got to work for Channel 5 Television. So you're saying you started your own film school. I was a co-founder of the film school at the Orson Welles Cinema. Oh, wow. <laughs> named Orson, which was halfway between MIT and Harvard. At the time, there were no films. There were only four film schools in the country. USC, UCLA, New York, uh, NYU, and BU, Boston University. So uh, they needed another film school because everybody wanted to study film. And the Orson Welles Cinema was one of the early cinemas that would do crazy things like run uh, uh, Harder They Fall for 24 hours straight <laughs> so that you could do all your acid and just sit there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they just, that was a fun place. And then I worked for Channel 5 and Channel 5 was interesting. It was the first, probably the only station ever to, to uh, grab a license from another station. And they, they went on the, and they promised 52 hours of programming a week, which is more than a network, I think. And I was the production uh, director cameraman. And uh, for fun, I'd go shoot news. So I would shoot for five or six days a week for seven years. So I shot basically, wow. I, figured I shot about, wow. I figured I shot about uh, 20 million feet of film altogether in 16, which would be 40 million at 35. So I basically lived in the camera and saw everything through the camera and hid behind the camera quite a bit. And uh, so then I, in film school, I had read a book called Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo. I was actually going to ask about that. Yeah, famous book about a guy, World War I, gets everything blown up, arms, legs, face, ears, eyes, and so forth. Then I saw the film they tried to make out of it. <laughs> Basically, this, I'm not kidding. This is mother and the father standing over a bed, looking down and going, I wonder what he's thinking now. I wonder if he misses his dog. I wonder if he ever had a girlfriend. Isn't it too bad he got everything blown off and he has no input, no output. And just parenthetically, I'm a uh, long-lapsed Catholic. I've always been terrified of uh, purgatory which is just that. Yeah. No inputs, no outputs. You sit there. It's not even a magazine. There's nothing. You're there for, they gave my uncle Bud 20,000 years when he died. And I said, he's a postman. That's it. So uh, <laughs> what could he have done? You know, he, what, he lost some in the mail. Anyway, 
so uh, I, it bothered me, this concept. And as I'm looking through the camera for 10 years, I'm going, this is an interesting thing. And, and so I started writing this or thinking about writing it. And the idea is that when, what do you look at when you look at a film? First thing you look at probably is the actors, which is why they pay them so much. Mm -hmm. Second thing you notice is the sound, what they're saying. Third is action, if any. One of the last things you really notice is the camera movement. And it's like the fourth or fifth thing behind everything. And if it's really good, you don't notice it. You're in the story. But I thought, what would happen if the camera was the A story? The movement of the camera. So you, so you have this guy uh, who has no inputs and outputs. And this is 1979-80, I started writing this. And uh, I said, so we, a video had just come out. Uh, and I said, uh, okay, so he starts getting, first he gets audio. You can hear stuff, but it's all garbled. And you can't make it out. Then it becomes more and more accessible. Then you see something, which is like video lines across. And then that gets more and more, uh, uh, more and more, more better, better as you go along. And then you get into the story, and every and the story is told totally through this guy's point of view. And so the stuff happening in the screen is often not as important as the camera movement or the camera framing or something like that. And one one example is I had a nurse in it uh, who had who was of course beautiful. It's a movie and was wearing a nurse outfit, like white outfit, semi-see-through, and I had planned big uh, uh, windows or big light sources in back, so you would see him following her around, and you get an idea of what he's thinking by the camera movement, and then the whole thing went that way. And then, uh, this is 1980, so at the time, I seemed to have invented things which are now common, but which didn't exist, which was drones, self-driving cars, planes you could control, this guy could control through his interface. And then he gets into the something new, which is uh, what they called a uh, series of tubes. <laughs> the inter the uh, inter <laughs> turns out that the my station in, in Channel 5, one of the one of the investors, a guy named um, Leo Baranek, who was a brilliant MIT uh, guy who I think invented cavity magnetron that permitted uh, aerial radar, World War II. And he also did, uh, they were a big audio firm and they did, they decoded the Zapruder film, uh, tapes to see where the shot came from and stuff like that. But uh, and just for, I guess, younger people who don't know, that's referring that, to the Kennedy assassination yeah, footage. It figured out where the shot came from by the echoing off of, of the sound off a of building. So this guy's a brilliant guy. Turns out he was working with uh, uh, Tim Berniers and the ARPANET, and he was one of the guys that invented the internet. I didn't know this at the time. It's just odd. <laughs> oh, wow. And so, yeah, so I put the internet in, uh, and at the time, nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. So um, I wrote this. Uh, <laughs> I was, I quit five. I went to Vegas. I had a terrible job. 
were supposed to be developing home video, I wound up work writing the, uh, the gangster talk show that you see in Casino. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I said, wait, I'm, a ca- I'm not a writer. They said, it's fake. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Write enough stuff for the cue card so we can focus the cameras. So I, <laughs> that was the first thing I wrote. Then I had to direct Orson Welles in a, in a gaming tape, which is wonderful. And then the last thing, well, before I quit, oh, of all the things I was supposed to develop, I developed 56 titles, and the one they picked was Yiddish sing-alongs. With <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, a bouncing ball, and I'm going, I got to get out of here. Wait, the Orson Welles, this was kind of from that era where he was doing the, like, wine commercial. Oh, yeah. I got a, I got a up whole drunk. story about that. When you go to my website, I, got, I wrote it up as a comic novel called Talking Hoods. <laughs> I Wait, what's, what's the website address so people uh, can look Chip it up? Com. Okay. One word. But uh, yeah, it was a horror show. He was uh, he's a handful. He was a handful. And I have all those stories about the little teeth. <laughs> you cannot say this. This isn't, these words don't go together in the English language. Oh, really? okay. <laughs> oh man. So, uh, and then the last thing I did, which, which messed me up terribly, because I had this constant, uh, not constant, but I have this terrible dream where I'm starring in a Broadway show and it's opening night and I don't know the lines. Do you ever have that dream? It's like I have. a pop sweat dream. Not, not Broadway, just high school theater. Yeah, still yeah. Have those so, nightmares. Uh, so imagine this. The guy says, okay, my boss said, you got to, you know, you got to, sh- you got to direct this thing we're doing at the Caesars Palace Sportsbook. With millions of people there and all this stuff. And uh, I said, you know, I don't direct multiple camera. I don't know how to do that. I've never, I did it once in college. I don't know how to do that. You have to develop, and he, he wouldn't let me off. I said, I do single camera, like a film shoot. He said, no, no, multi, you're a director. It says here, you got this Emmy. You're a director. You're going to do it. <laughs> and I'm, I have this flop sweat dream. So imagine the worst thing, if you've never called multiple cameras, imagine the worst thing they asked you to do. I'll give you three seconds and I'll tell you. The World Table Tennis Championship. Oh my God. So by the third shot, I was five <laughs> shots behind. And I just said, I said to the TD, uh, you call, I'm out of here. I'll just sit here and not, not bother anybody. And then I left and went to Hollywood with my script, which was Interface. And then uh, I moved in with uh, Brooke Adams, who's an actress, who was hot at the time and a young actor named Kevin Gear, who became a big Broadway actor. He read the script, gave it to his agent, the agent liked it, signed me, and then nothing happened for months. Am I boring you with this? No, no. I will pause just for a second, just so that make sure the audience is up to speed. Uh, We alluded to it, we're talking about Johnny got his gun, Uh, but the simple, quick version of Interface's premise is that much like Johnny got his gun, um, or we can, we'll talk about it a little bit later. I think people will see some RoboCop ended up doing. Yeah. Well, that's another story that. because that producer was the producer on. Oh. And then he. Well, we'll get to that. That. By the way, Johnny about, got his gun. Is oh. also became famous in the eighties. Uh, Metallica's video one. Yeah, they used the footage of his like nodding head and stuff. Yeah, doing they, the Morris code. They kind of uh, made it become a cult film. But, but interf- anyway. interface is about uh, Captain Walt, 
who we don't see it because it begins with him regaining this level, yeah. this new existence, um, but was like a soldier who died and, you know, lost all, basically he was just, brain, yeah. he was dead except for his brain and they've sort of rebuilt him as this machine. Yeah. So it's almost like if Hal from 2001 was a person. It actually named after my friend Walt Sigafus, who was killed in Vietnam oh. as a pilot, as a Wizzo, actually. Yeah, and Walt in this was a pilot. Um, and so the whole movie is just from the POV, uh, like, like you were saying, yeah. the idea that it's just what you're seeing through the lens. He doesn't have a being to look at. So, it, you know, it's just right. like, which is a problem later on in yeah. this story. Um, but uh, not my, to interrupt uh, you, I just wanted to make yeah, sure my, the audience got the premise of the movie. And, and all this cool to, stuff of him basically well, building gonna, out his whole... Oh, sorry, Steve, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just, just going to compare it to recent, uh, recent times, the uh, Maniac remake uh, that's mm. all POV and the hardcore Henry movie that's all POV. And now this is in the early 80s, a film yeah. like, you know, at like the, this. At the time, the only one that had done that was I think Robert Montgomery in a, in a Chandler movie called Lady at the Lake. Yeah, which I had to watch in film school actually. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but I, I can't think of anything other than like other movies like speaking of 2001, there, there'd be like a scene that was from someone's point of view right. but never right. the whole movie uh, and unlike Maniac or Hardcore Henry that Steve was mentioning, uh, I think it's kind of an interesting evolution is that it starts with just him trapped in the lab and all he can see is basically right. what they're letting him see and then like i had to keep reminding myself i was like what what year was this written because like you said you have the internet you have drones but he's basically yeah. reaching out to the world through computers and gaining access to security cameras and essentially like builds himself drones to go explore um yes. But anyway, uh, not to interrupt your uh, line of thinking there. Just wanted to bring the audience up to speed. Okay, so... Uh, Brooke Adams. Oh, anyway, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. So I was uh, so I was in Hollywood. And I get, uh, I don't know if this is interesting, but this is how it happened. Uh, I get this phone call from a, a girl. I said, you your president? Yeah. Do you know Horace Greeley McNabb? I said, uh-oh, what's he done now? Uh <laughs> Horace Greeley McNabb was the world's greatest press agent, uh, self-referenced, and the man with the world's most beautiful feet. But he was beautiful feet, <laughs> beautiful, which he used to terrify myself and my brothers by threatening to come to our high school class and exhibiting them <laughs> on a small satin pillow with a rose-colored uh, spotlight. And we were terrified that he would show up and do that. He was a wacko, crazy guy who had been in World War II. And his name was really Horace Greeley, Greeley McNabb. McNabb. Yeah, ask old actors from Broadway. They will they all have stories. <laughs> because he would go six months, okay, and then he would have the worst fucking drunk that you ever saw. He would tear up his apartment. You'd have to find him. And when we were kids, we would have to drive down all the country roads in Bucks County looking for where the corn was knocked down and go into that uh, avenue of knockdown yeah. corn, find his Jaguar and often himself in it. But anyway, so I got this call <laughs> from this girl in San Francisco and she says, uh, do you know Horace Greeley? Yeah, okay, what's he done? He says, well, she, he just hired me 
uh, his, the show opens in three days and nobody can find him. And so I said, okay, I'll fly up right away. So I fly to, flew up and we, I spent a week with this girl trying to find Horace Greeley McNabb. And finally, we found him in his underwear near the Jack Tar Hotel in the DTs. We got him back. Um, but finally, this girl says, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, you know, I used to be a, I'm a filmmaker, but basically I just have a script. She says, oh, can I read it? She says, oh, sure. So she read it, and then she tells me, she goes, you know, I'm the babysitter for the uh, person who reads all the scripts for Zotrope Studios, uh, uh, Coppola's place. Do you mind if I show it to him? And I said, do I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I get a call from uh, a month later, I get a call from uh, one of the producers over there. Come on down. He had just gotten back. They had all just gotten back from uh, uh, the Philippines for two years, which was like, I mean, they literally, as you know, they had to, the helicopters were actually in a war and they had yeah. to wash the blood out between takes. Say, so he was in a strange brain space at this point. He was in a, a brain space where, where he wanted to have a studio and have everything contained. This was the perfect thing for him because he had this thing called the Silverfish, which was a little trailer. And he was the first guy that I know of to say, why don't we attach video to film cameras so we can see the takes as we're doing them? And we can actually start cutting them. Uh, and this was, uh, you know, usually you have to wait for your rushes. And that's why you always have to check the gate. Is there a hair in there? Is there a piece of film in there? Is it messed up? He was the first one to connect, as far as I know. And interface worked perfectly. Because it says right on the front page, it said this is to be shot in video. And so it worked perfectly with what he wanted to do. Uh, except the fact that he put his Coke dealer on as director. Um, <laughs> that didn't work out too good. Uh, was his Coke dealer someone uh, in particular? Well, there, was like, there was like four guys that hung together. And one was George Lucas, one was Coppola, one was uh, uh, some other big filmmaker. Oh, John Melius? Yeah, Maybe? something like that. At UCLA. And, yeah. Uh, anyway, this guy didn't have any talent. Anyway, uh, so what happened was Coppola was making one from the heart. So he wanted to stay in the studio. And he had a, the dance scene between Raul Julia and uh, Terry Garr, famous uh, dancing number. <laughs> and uh, he wanted to, it, would, it took place downtown Las Vegas near, Gower, near the Gulch. And rather than go there and shoot, he wanted to build the whole thing, the whole set in the studio, which he did. And he was going broke at the time. And uh, it took a million dollars just for the neon in the set. So he sold my film to Paramount to get the million dollars. And I didn't, no one told me. Someone said, hey, you know, your film's no longer there. And I'm going, what? And nobody would talk to me about it. I was a non-person. I was just the writer of this million dollar film or script that went over. Ah, finally, the life of a writer. <laughs> yes. So I changed agents and uh, finally got in and I got this meeting with uh, uh, Katzenberg. So finally, and so I'm walking down the hallway and this woman is coming up and looking at me strange and the hallways in Paramount are 
spooky places. I don't know if you've ever been there. Mm -hmm. Un unlit, bad rugs, spooky at the time. I'm walking down there and this woman comes up and is like looking at me like, who's going to see Katzenberg all by himself? And she goes, who are you? And I go, Chip Prozer. She goes, Chip Prozer? As in Interface? As in, that's the most wonderful film? Oh, that, she hadn't read it. This is the most wonderful, it's so perfect. I said, I'm so thrilled to meet you. And I said, well, actually we've met. And she goes, no, no, we, we've never met. I said, yeah. And she goes, where do we meet? I go, that party in Westwood, Saturday night. I talked to you for half an hour. <laughs> and she goes, well, you weren't anybody then. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's the title of my memoirs. Uh, you weren't anybody then. So I, anyway, I go to see uh, Katzenberg. And he says, uh, first thing is, we're never going to make this movie. It's point of view. Apparently, they had a meeting. And they said, because they had one more film to do before the strike. This is the story of my life. I always in this position. And Coppola sold him the idea that this was a film all ready to go, already had been developed, ready to go before the strike. And then they said, what's the lead look like? Long silence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you never see him. They go, what? You bought a movie, you never see the lead? How are we going to cast that? They said, we're not going to make it. We're not going to let you make it. We're not going to anybody make it. We're not going to put it in a turnaround. We're just going to sit on it forever. I said, that's, oh, okay. <laughs> I said, but we want you to work with us. You're great. We want, and I said, mm, I don't think so. And uh, so they offered me like, uh, oh, uh, dirty dancing. I said, not me, really. And uh uh, I mean, <laughs> Beverly Hills the, the logical thing to give the yeah. guy an interface. Yeah, dirty Male dance. coming of age yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jewish girls and dress singers? I don't know. It's not really up my alley. Anyway. So you so, said uh, um, Beverly Hills Cop they offered you? Yeah, but it had Sylvester Stallone and a big gun. And Stallone <laughs> was, noted, was known for rewriting everything he did anyway. So, I go, you know, what the hell? What's the problem? But I just... I was so pissed off that they were just not going to make it, not going to let anybody else make it because you never saw the lead character. So then Katzenberg went on to make several billion dollars doing cartoons where you don't see any characters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Danny DeVito is the hedgehog. Great. That's wonderful. <laughs> you know. So, uh, you know, that's, it's still been there in the writer's guild at the time. It said after seven years, you can get your, your film back. So I took that to court and lost. Really? Thought, yeah. Well, they would have had to pay me what Coppola paid me, or I would have had to pay them what Coppola paid me, and they paid a million dollars to Coppola. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's worth much more to them as a continual write-off against any film that ever makes money. So it's in their inventory. They're still losing money on it. It's great. It's a perfect. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Wait, you never saw any of that million dollars, right? Of course not. Are you kidding? <laughs> I didn't get the last sixty-two fifty that he owed me for for my script. So uh, and what's crazy is one from the heart is what kind of um, it it cost twenty six million to make, and it, it didn't even make a million when it came out. Well. As I said, the great dancing team of Raul Julia and the Terry, Terry Gar. <laughs> um, I mean, no, it was, uh, you know, but the, the writer is now a big shot producer because he found uh, a car dealer to back him or something. 
Uh, Wait, when you saw one from the heart, were you you at least impressed by the neon budget? (laughs) (laughs) Love the neon. But the neon, whoa, perfect. Yeah, so uh, that's that's the story of internet. And it's still there. It's still there. It's now, what, 40 years? Imagine at the at the prime plus twenty percent plus whatever they they're writing this off forever. This is the greatest thing. They they never have to pay anybody a back end. I mean, I mean, and they clearly I don't think would for the reasons no. you're, you're saying. But uh, as we already said, it it was bizarrely prescient because you really could still make it now. Like the I'm gonna make it now. It's my next project after my present one. Yeah. Because now I've I've got, I finally got a new idea how to take it further, uh, and drones are cheap. Did you, did you know <laughs> that people hate the drone pilot more than anybody on the set? The drone <laughs> really? pilot has become the new asshole of the set. I don't know why. It's because I'm a pilot. You know, I don't know. They have, they have a specialized uh, skill. <laughs> a, yeah, friend, but- a friend of mine uh, just shot something that last shot the drone crashed and everybody applauded. <laughs> well, it was crazy in the script. It was like a scene that was like uh, a mo- montage cerebro sex scene. And oh, I, was yeah, like, I wanted to bring that up too. <laughs> I did yeah. that last night with my, uh, no, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> well, then that, well, that <laughs> became like a big thing in the Lawnmower Man movie that would come out then in like 92. And, and like, and here it is in this script back in 1980. Which well, was that's what pissed me off. I I invented a lot of things that people have stolen all over the over the. In fact, uh, you mentioned RoboCop. There's one scene in RoboCop. It's. I mean, the opening of your script and the sequence in RoboCop where he's first coming back to life and they're having like a New yeah. Year's Eve party or yeah. whatever are almost identical. Well, that that was that producer was on interface, and then he said, "Well, this is not getting made. Nah, what else can we do here?" Hmm. And uh, but the the scene where he uh, gets a drone and looks in on his wife, who's married a different person now, uh, that was. And I just saw that scene with uh, Tom Hanks in the, in the in Castaway, right? Oh. He's dead. His wife marries another person. He's got to go and see her. I mean, I was even thinking in RoboCop, there's a scene where he visits his old house that's now empty. I mean, RoboCop yeah. is basically, it was like they just solved the problem they felt. It was like, oh, no, we, let's do yeah. interface, but you can see him. Right, that's, uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's done well. I think there's three or four sequels to it. So, uh, you know. But I, I did want to elaborate on the scene Steve mentioned, just because it was so interesting. Uh also, as far as how you were expanding the idea, even beyond the fact that he was building drones for himself, there's a really cool scene where he has like a whole drone sports car almost that he builds and has like a police yeah. chase and realizes that if they ever catch it, you know, they'll realize what's going on. So he has to crash it at the end and basically destroy yeah. the evidence. But I thought it was interesting that you were also having it where he was sort of fine. Basically, the idea, and you think you even spell it out as such in the script, that there's a scene where he's like, you kind of keep cutting back and forth between him sort of expanding his own circuits and like analyzing someone's brain and realizing that really, once you get down into the microscopic level, a machine and a brain are kind of the same thing. But he's able to manipulate uh, the female lead's brain. Like he can kind of 
hack into her mind. And he's basically like, we don't, I don't need a body to have sex. That's all just sex isn't in your body. It's how your brain interprets things that happen into your body. And he basically just flips all the right switches in her, in her brain and they have a big sex yeah. scene without touching. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, Fox News, isn't it? They're <laughs> <laughs> manipulating your brain through computers or something. Russian That's computer. giving them a lot of credit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, like, there was another wild scene. It was like, um, like where he's communicating with dolphins and whales, like, uh, ru- like uh, rushing through the murky water suddenly as they emit sounds, the images of whales and dolphins yeah. appear. Like, well, I like, like that too. Then when he's talking to them about it and they're like, you can talk to the dolphins and whales. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, what do they want? And he's like, they're basically asking me questions. Like, like what? Like, are people going to kill us? What do you tell them? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, no, I was going to say, I love that scene. I've never seen anything like that before. <laughs> and I was like, that is like what the yeah. capabilities of this character was. It's pretty yeah. wild. Well, it's, you know, it's good dope in Boston, so. Uh. <laughs> well, when, during the phase where Coppola was, before he sold it, um, like, were you involved in any conversations of talking about the actual production and, like, how they were going to try and shoot things? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me tell you, you know what the scariest thing in Hollywood is? Scariest thing you could have happen? Being in a room with Francis Coppola half a pound of dope, uh, scissors, pot of glue, and your screenplay. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, sequence four should be where sequence 12 is. Sequence 19 should be where 32 is. And I think four should be... As... Now, this is the thing that took me six years to figure out where the scenes go. Yeah. They used to tell me, just recut the whole thing. So I didn't. Um... <laughs> And it happened once before with a with a producer at Channel Five when I was doing a documentary on theater. He came in, he was pissed at me, he came into the editing room and he said, put scene four where scene nine is, put sequence six where scene five is. He walks out of the room. My editor turns to me and goes, What do I do? And I said, Nothing. That was one in Emmy. Anyway, so, were you were you saying that Coppola was actually planning to shoot a lot of it on video? Was yeah. that yeah, that was and, and crazy using, using this silverfish thing, which yeah. he had developed. He, you know, when you say the budget on that movie, I think a lot of it was like overhead for his studio, and developing this silverfish thing, uh, and and you know, experimenting with the idea that you could be cutting the movie as you're shooting the movie, mm-hmm. and you could see every shot and all that sort of thing, and. and now it's everybody does it. It's like common. It's why didn't we think of this? But at the time, it was a big deal. Yeah, I'm curious what his tech was like because I, I I know Jerry Lewis had some rudimentary yeah thing he made because he would star in his all his movies and he's a perfectionist and that was clearly right. driving him nuts having to wait for <laughs> dailies to find out if he did a take the way he wanted. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think he did. I think you're right about that. I've heard about that. Video. Yeah, I found a snippet in uh, the Don Simpson bio book that uh, is sitting there because you're, you're in there quite a oh, bit. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and There's a said, new book coming out on Top Gun. I hear I'm in that too. 
Oh yeah. Well, well I'll, yeah. I want to ask you about talk Bowman in a, in a moment. Uh, the, the, it said in there was uh, the plan for interface was uh, for the movie to combine complex visual graphics from film, slides, and video, a, comp a company with music. So I guess he yeah. was being super like uh, experimental with it as well, which would have been interesting. With interface or with uh, well, with interface. Oh, Don Simpson said this. Oh no, this was in the. Uh, this was in the Don Simpson book, but it was talking about zoetrope, what oh, they were going to do yeah. with what yeah, they were well, going to do with interface. You know, uh, I would have been open to any kind of visual images that that worked. You know, uh, you know what your memory. That's what I'm working on now. What do your memories look like? Mm -hmm. you know, I don't. I don't know if you can do this. I, I can do if I close my eyes and am, am half asleep. I can create very elaborate visual uh, objects, scenes and things. And I can just build them up in my mind and explore them as if there's something new uh, that I'm not planning. It's like I'm exploring a new... So it's I'm sort of like lucid dreaming a little yeah. bit? You're telling me I'm nuts. I need some therapy here, but uh, <laughs> you don't no, do that I, anyway. I've, I have friends who, uh, like, there's, there's tricks you can do to, like build up the ability to have lucid dreams. I never had the patience to do it, but yeah, well, I know it's a I, thing you know, some people can do. I do it naturally when I'm bored, but uh, yeah. <laughs> this, this uh, I think you can use, I'm planning on using that in the next, whatever I call the new interface. But uh, I don't want to, I don't mind getting sued, but I want to win. <laughs> no, don't blame <laughs> you. But uh, Interface led to you getting Top Gun. Like, how did they pitch Top Gun to you? How did that all happen? They had to twist my arm. My agent got on me for, I had a, you know, I just refused to work at Paramount, basically. for Because you were pissed off years. about. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, at least put it in turnaround. At least let somebody make it. Because I had all these ideas. I knew they were all going to be stolen. You know, and I wanted to have it out before, but you know, Hatzenberg and his uh, his brilliance, you know, would not make it, would not let it go. Anyway, so I wouldn't uh, work. You know, I had a meeting with Jerry when they first were uh, thinking about it about and Top I, Gun. Oh, Top Gun. Yeah, and he uh, and they thought about he, Don Simpson saw a. A, one of those magazines, San Diego Magazine, and he saw a picture of this guy standing with a flight uh, jacket on with the shades in front of a uh, F-14. He said, that's a movie. I don't know what it is, but it's a movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, I had a meeting with Jerry in a very nice uh, dinner meeting, and then I said, yeah, but I don't work at Paramount. And so uh, I guess they got some other people to do the first draft. And then my agent twisted my arm and says, you got to make this movie because it's going to be a big movie and all this stuff. So um, he talked me into, and again, it was three weeks before the next writer's strike. <laughs> <laughs> I always have two weeks before I have to write things in two, three weeks anyway. And they, so I went in and met with him. Sorry. I went in and met with him, and, uh, and they gave me their usual silent treatment. That's when you sit there, they say nothing. 
<laughs> First guy talks, loses. So we sat there for about 20 minutes. I wouldn't talk and they wouldn't talk. And then finally, uh, you know, I forget what happened, but we made a deal and the deal was that I would be week to week and they could fire me at any time. And uh, so the we had three weeks to to do a page one rewrite. We had to do a page one rewrite because the Navy wouldn't approve the planes flying uh, because they were flying all wrong. Uh, they had them going, yippee, we're going ballistic. And uh, you don't actually want to go to ballistic, go <laughs> ballistic. It means you're out of control. It means, it means your airfoils are not working on the air and your mass is carrying you someplace you don't want to be and you're tumbling and you're going to die. Not good. So they, so the Navy wouldn't approve it because of that. And Paramount, Don Steele wouldn't approve it because the woman was a, uh, uh, a instructor that they met on the beach. So, uh, you know, Navy flyers are a, a type personalities. They're top of the line and they're a lot of them are you know, very brilliant. And so there was, the dialogue was terrible because this was an aerobicized instructor. Were they going to talk to? <laughs> so, so I went down and I, we went down to Miramar and, and I'm looking around and going, you know, are there any women around here? And they said, oh, well, you got to go to MCRD. And I said, what's that? And they said, it's the biggest meat market in Southern California. It's where the flyers come in after flying all day, doing it air combat maneuvering all day. They're all sweated up in their flight suits and all the blondes from the beach flock in there and try to uh, get a flyer, you know? So I went in there and I'm looking around and sure enough, every flyer had two or three beautiful girls around them, you know, except one woman who was a little older had all these flyers around her. And I said, who's that? And uh, they said, well, that's the tag ref. And I said, what's a tag ref? And they said, well, she explains air combat maneuvering to the admiral, and she explains what the admiral wants to the flyers. And I said, is she fucking the admiral? And they said, how did you know? And I said, <laughs> Hollywood professional, screenwriter. I know these things instinctively. And so that became, she became the character uh, because she could talk, real talk to, to the pilots. So, uh, oh, uh, first, <laughs> we had three weeks. First week, Simpson didn't sober up. So they, I said, I got to start. They said, you can't start till he gives you his notes. I said, when is that? They said, stand by. And so I went to the batting cage and started hitting him out. And I was doing really well. I hit 650 for that year, <laughs> waiting for this guy to sober up enough to give me his notes. And finally, he gives me the notes. And... They're like 50 pages, one sentence. Like, <laughs> on, you know. And, oh, yeah, I see. No, no period. Get up, and I'm like, what the hell is this? Jerry, what do I do with this? He says, eh, I don't know. He was probably coked out of his mind while he was. Absolutely. Coked his Did you feel of- that your experience <laughs> with Horace Greeley McNabb had prepared you for Yeah, in all the wrong <laughs> ways. Yeah. <laughs> it's my goal in life to be with wackos who are out of their minds. Oh, but, man. Uh, so, uh, you know, finally, it, this is, as you know, this is written up on my website. Um, but finally, he, he, he kind of sobered up enough that I could go ahead and write it. And so basically wrote it in two weeks. And 
I think what helps me most in that is the fact that I'd been a documentary cameraman for seven years on the streets. And so you're in the moment. You either get it or you don't. And it yeah. So I, it, I didn't get all hung up on, on worrying about writer's block or anything. I just did it and corrected it. So and I also unfortunately killed uh, Paul Mance, I think, because I wrote the flat spin in and he killed himself trying to do it. So mm-hmm. no. that was a negative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, you know, and then uh, that's, uh, that's about it. Uh, Must have been a wild working with Don Simpson. I know in that book, there's like a fun story about you going to his house and. Oh yeah. yeah the, the Uzi story. Yeah. The Uzi story. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, uh, yeah, he, <laughs> Uh, I went over there, he's flown, he had this Uzi, you know, first of all, to get into his house, which is up on Cherokee, you had to pass through two Armani guys with, with heat, uh, just to get in there, and, and all kinds of security stuff, and I'm like, what the hell is this all about? And so I get in there, and he's got, he's coked out of his, out of his mind, and he showed me a uh, check for $5 million, <laughs> made out from Paramount to Don Simpson. He says, that's not the movie. That's just the soundtrack. Wow. Because, because what he would do, and while Jerry was off developing the script of the movie and stuff, he'd sit in his room and he would listen to top 40 music over and over and over and over to get the zeitgeist of the moment, the beat, the, the mood. And then he'd have, uh, I think, this German guy write songs that were close was that all the top songs was that Giorgio Moroder I think it was Zimmer okay and Zimmer or somebody like that I forget but anyway so if you listen to the soundtrack or any of the sound you know soundtrack on uh, Flashdance soundtrack on all these things he was smart enough to make a deal where he got a lot of the soundtrack money wow oh wow (laughs) and so there's more money in soundtracks than there is in movies because of the way they figure your back end or as we call them, monkey points. So, uh, yeah, so he was doing it. So anyway, he had this Uzi, and he was like waving it around. And uh, and, he go, and it had a laser sight on it. And, and dumb, dumb, he said, look, dumb, dumb bullets. You're hit, you we blow apart. And I go, uh, Don, uh, give me that. And he grabbed it from him. <laughs> and he panicked, saying, oh, my God, the writer's got the gun. This is the worst thing in Hollywood. <laughs> I knew they'd get in those writers. I knew they'd get in this way. And uh, he says, well, you don't know where the uh, safeties are. I said, yeah, there are two of them in here. Now they're both off. And he's really panicked. And then uh, we didn't get along too good after that. And and then Jerry tried to, he said, we want you on the set. And we're going to cut your price by 75%. And I said, no. I'll do something else. So I got married, had kids instead. So we also that, sold yeah. Inner Space, the original version of Inner Space around this time too, right? What? This, uh, Inner Space? Oh, that's, yeah, yeah. I think that was around the same time. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's Peter Goober. Yeah. Another <laughs> fun guy. <laughs> uh, yeah. My agent, my agent said... Uh, this guy's a real double-crossing asshole, but he gets movies made. 
My agent said that. I said, turned out just, to be right, I guess. Yeah. I said, can we skip the meeting and just go to lunch? He said, no, the meeting's scheduled. You got to go. <laughs> oh, so he man. says, uh, I want to make a film about this big guy and a little guy. I said, Fantastic Voyage. He said, never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you, you were at the studio at the time they made it. You must have seen the, something. Yeah. No, never heard of it. This is my two, totally new idea, which I just had. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, here's my big mistake. I said, uh, well, the, the, the big guy is up and running around. It's a buddy comedy. Sold. Okay. Done. You know, when you're hot, you're hot. Yeah. When you're not, you're not. When you're hot, you can say anything. When you're not, you can say anything. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. So, uh, yeah. So that, uh, and then, on my wedding day, I get a call from Bruce Berman. He says, how do you like the new script, which they had rewritten? And I said, well, of course, it's imbecilic. And he said, another call. Bye. And that was it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I wasn't even invited to the opening. Oh. My agent, yeah, my agent said, you, I'm invited. I said, you're invited. He said, yeah. He said, he said you want to go? I said, I don't date agents. I'm <laughs> <laughs> married. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that story. I got a million of them. Fortunately. I was going to say, maybe a good time then to segue to Big Trouble in Little China 2. I'm curious how you got, because you were saying you looked at it and we looked at it the same, realized the same thing, that this was going to be a TV movie complete with all the act breaks and the script. And I'm curious how you got involved with that one. This one now, we were jumping forward a little bit to the early Before. 90s. Yeah. Um, I had just, I believe I just signed with William Morris and I wanted to be a good boy for a while and do what they asked me. So they sent me over to Fox to talk about this. I don't know if I had seen the movie or, I, you know, I got to tell you, I don't like the movie. I don't like the way it's shot. And if you look the at it, Big Trouble One, you mean? Yeah, the scenes are shot in very tight close-up, one after another, and you know Kurt Russell in that kind of a close-up. Wow, I mean he's a good-looking guy, but it's it's just <laughs> too close for you. Too, well, con yeah, I mean there's a reason why you do an establishing shot and then move in and then close up over the shoulder. There's a reason for that uh, uh, technique. And then pulling out every once in a while, let the audience breathe a little bit. It's like they say in a film, in a screenplay, let them breathe a little. Don't make, you know, don't uh, add everything up right together. Um, put something boring in the middle so they can go to the bathroom. Uh, so, <laughs> and, and then, you know, the, uh, the uh, special effects are like, you know, from the planet of the cheesy special effects. And you realize they were trying to steal like Hong Kong stuff with those trampoline jumping mm -hmm. sword fights. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do it all that well at the time. So anyway, um, they said, uh, you know, again, you got, you know, I did two drafts of it. Um, and I, w I went, out in the, went out in my shed when I realized I was going to talk to you guys to see if I could find it. And the rats had eaten into my shed oh, no. <laughs> some of my screenplays oh, and no. the Hollywood rats they ate uh, they were very 
you know, high level Hollywood rats. So they <laughs> yeah. ate one of the little big troubles and they, <laughs> they chewed it up and they made a, a rat's nest out of it. And then they shit all over it. Oh man. Which is why rats have something to do with there was this Hollywood directors. Symbolic in some way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a metaphor. Yeah. Uh, it's Hollywood. So, uh, now I have, I did two drafts. I have one draft that is on paper and another draft that's in Multimate. Oh, <laughs> wow. Is, yeah. And trying to get these things together to figure out what it was, it's impossible. I've been on it for three, four days. I can't figure oh, out. Oh, man. Oh, I'm sorry. I would have sent you a, a copy. Oh, oh, you got a copy? Great. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah the one we um, have um, is dated January uh, 1995 and it was based on uh, a story idea by Peter David who might be known to some of our listeners as a well-known comic book writer he wrote for the Incredible Hulk comics for like a pretty long famous stretch back around this time um, I'm just fascinated by the idea that this was going to be a TV movie do you remember anything about what the outlet was going to be like was it going to be on Fox I assumed it was on Fox. You know, I didn't really, by then I'd been in the business so long, I knew that most things don't get made anyway. Yeah, so you're just- and It didn't occur to me to ask, yeah. you know, who the second AD would be on this or anything yeah. like that. I just basically, I wanted to try to make sense of it in a way that wasn't racist in any way. And, you know, I don't know virtually anything about uh, Chinese religion, but it seemed a little funny that it was all about marrying a girl with green eyes or something. Oh, in the first Original. movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so I didn't, so I, I think I just out of my own, I like to amuse myself. So I just put some funny lines in and uh, tried to come up with a, a new and different story. And then of course you get the notes. You know, no, <laughs> back to the old story. So I don't, I don't know who that guy you mentioned is. I know there was a producer on it, and I've forgotten his name. Uh, yeah, and the only thing I know, I found it was like Fox Star Productions. And they ended up doing the, the the series Alien Nation. I guess they they took that movie and they turned it into like a successful series. Yeah, yeah. I did wonder and, if this was kind of a a backdoor pilot or whatever you would call it. They're hoping if the yeah, TV movie, because yeah. I, I. I um, you know, even though uh, I am of the generation that loves the first Big Trouble movie, I think that's also a movie you see at the right age. You really lock yeah. into the the silliness <laughs> yeah. of it because, right, the movie was not successful when it came out. I think most people right. saw the ads for it and didn't know what to make of it. It's a very strange mm -hmm. yeah. tone, um, and you're entirely right that I think that was John Carpenter taking both things he liked about westerns, but also the kind of Hong Kong wire foo trampoline crazy yeah. action uh, but, but I, this oh sorry you're gonna say i i think if you're gonna do that it's a comedy you know i don't it's not it's certainly not serious so if it's not a comedy i don't know what it is but the first one is a comedy but i think people didn't know if it was supposed <laughs> i think that was the problem when the movie came out is people didn't know if it was trying to be funny or if it was mm -hmm. unintentionally funny yeah uh, and and the it's what I call Wes Craven acting, where every actor is equally bad. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, not a big fan of my ex-neighbor. Um, oh, he was ex-neighbor, Wes yeah. Craven. 
Um, but the, so the premise of this, and again, why I think it kind of feels like a backdoor pilot is it is sequeling the location, right? It's not yeah. about the further adventures of Jack Burton, Kurt Russell's character. And the returning character, I think makes sense uh, for fans of the first movie is Egg Shen, who was like an yeah. older tour bus driver. Um, and in this one, our, our, I guess you'd say, white hero audience avatar for the non-Chinese yes. audience. No has to be a white hero. Of we course, right. of course. Can't make a little China movie just about Chinese people. But right. no. <laughs> uh, he was a guy, Steve Taylor. And I guess I kind of see what you were saying of wanting to like get more into the religion as he plays. Uh, also kind of, he's, him and his dad are the curators of the Chinese Heritage Museum, even though... Both of them are white. But right. in this, you at least had it where he grew up in Hong Kong. Like his dad right. had lived there yeah. and he stu- like, you know, majored in Chinese studies. So he's, a, he's at least not a fish. He's a fish out of water in Little China in that, like most people, he thinks it's just the Little China you go to and it has right. restaurants and uh, bars and stuff. Not, doesn't know anything about the secret hidden world of right. black magic and all this. And in this, our villain is a guy named Chi Lung. And the kind of story surrounds uh, a Chinese ideogram puzzle called the Chai, Chai Tao, right. which has been broken, was broken into three pieces long ago. Right. Also you, known as the MacGuffin. Of or, course, yes. Or the Maltese Falcon. Which the MacGuffin device. <laughs> yeah. And you want to assemble all of those uh, and then you'll you know get ultimate power <laughs> But there's some fun stuff in this too. Like a Chai Lung's a fun villain. And kind of yeah. the whole thing is, is that he has two of the pieces and assembles them and then summons a demon uh, named, I wrote that down. Yo, yo. Yo, oh, Yen Lo. Yen Lo, right. Uh, who's like a demon from hell. And he basically summons him and just sort of like imprisons him in his office, basically. Uh, <laughs> it is like kind of taunting them. They have a fun relationship. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that part. I just read that again and I laughed. I thought that was those guys were funny. And, yeah, uh, I mean, this actually, I, I think this would have made, again, as fan of the movie, I think there's the part of you that wants to see Jack Burton back, but at the same time, is every sequel going to be him getting summoned back to Little China? So I, I, I yeah, would have loved I, this as like a 90s uh, TV series, frankly. Yeah, because it's like the world building on yeah. the first movie. So there was plenty of room to, you know, you're, and it you're does st- all the all the stuff that we as fans of the first one, not you, but right, right. loved about the first one is you had because there's a gang, uh, the Flame Lords who work for Chai yeah. Long. And once he's starting to get some powers, he has right. Yen Lo turn them all into demons. So they're kind of weird half monsters for most of the movie. That's the part I like because that can be done well now. I mean, yeah. at the time, the special effects were kind of bad. But now you could do really great special effects and great uh, uh, images of hell, you know. And I, t- I, I tell you what happens on each different level of hell, which was fun. Uh, yes. Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and uh, by the way, my son is a COO of Kitbash 3D, and they make all those three-dimensional uh, 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 backgrounds for the movies, and oh. they just came out with a lot of stuff. You should check it out. What's the company? Kitbash 3D, and uh, it's uh, my son and his friend from uh, kindergarten. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Name uh, uh, Max. And they do, you should look at it because they do, you can buy a moon colony, you can buy, uh, you know, ancient uh, lands for like 200 bucks, cheap. You know? Well, now, I mean, that, that, that's kind of my, uh, moving that yeah. direction, but now yeah. with uh, COVID-19, I think that <laughs> it's rapidly well, with, becoming actually, more and more actually, how things are shot. With COVID-19, this, this works much better, yeah. you know, because mm -hmm. you don't have to be there. <laughs> yeah. And and they just had a thing, you know, how they shoot now with the, uh, uh, in Pasadena, they have this thing with all these little screens, four, 4K screens around, and so you project uh, the backgrounds and you get it all in one shot. You don't have to go to post. It's all in your foreground actors, your background stuff. Yeah, for those listening who uh, right. don't watch the show, no, I was going to say um, a Disney Plus's Star Wars show, The Mandalorian, mm -hmm. uh, that's how they shoot everything. No actual locations or, or right. the set will be like a desk and maybe part of a boulder. And then, yeah. like you're saying, yeah. the rest is yeah. it's basically modern rear projection technology. Right. What they so usually use. That would be, you know, if they wanted to do Little China, you know, big trouble again you have mm -hmm. all that available so it'd look a lot better you know you could do a lot more and be a lot more fun in fact i should rewrite the script to see <laughs> yeah, i mean like or even for like a graphic novel what <laughs> uh, no i think this would even make a good graphic novel this one and yeah yeah also, also it was the timing of this because i was looking i was remembering because that was when um john woo was coming to america like he he just like broken mm -hmm. arrow is in 96 he did a tv show out of his movie once a thief and so that's when i was going to watching the jackie chan movies and when they mm -hmm. were before miramax was like re dimension was recutting them and releasing them it was like uh yeah like there was this resurgence of hong kong cinema here and and so they kind of had their finger on the pulse at the right time to bring this back because yeah it's like a cool you know it's like a this was a cool tv movie of just that of just you expanding on that universe but that universe yeah. and following this little the, the wizard from the first film and you know i yeah. i don't know I, it was a very entertaining read you think I can sell it to him twice? Let's see. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> why not? Come on. They won't remember. Just yeah. send them the same script and say it's yeah. new. Yeah. Just take out series. the act breaks. They won't remember. Yeah. They're all gone. <laughs> yeah, all exactly. They won't remember. Yeah. yeah. Something like this today would work better as a Netflix series because there's so much in that world to expand on, you know, without yeah. Jack Burton, you know, as right. he moves on. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, a strong girl in it, woman. Yes. You know, so there you got everything. I was way ahead of myself again. <laughs> <laughs> so, and there's a, uh, it opens with a fun uh, heist scene, which I'm, I'm always a sucker for a movie that opens yeah, with heist, where they're stealing the first <laughs> yeah. piece of the right. Chai Tao and the right. guy uses burning incense to like yeah. show him where all the lasers are. That's what I had in the inner space and I cut it out. Oh, really? Mm. That was a. Yeah, they give, they give it to me. It's, it's in some syringe that he gets in an elevator. I go, yeah. wait, I spent days, hours even, writing that opening that makes sense. Oh, <laughs> oh wait, he gets injected differently in your version? I mean, has, like, no, no, there's a whole, there's a whole sequence they open up where they, where they uh, steal the CRM-114, which, of course, you know, is from Strange, uh, 
strange love. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and the nerd, the Martin Short character is there getting a drink of, you know, he wants a drink of water and he drinks from the wrong uh, vial or something and ingests <laughs> it. And then they can't- Oh, I see, the shrunk, it was in the- Yeah, they, 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 they uh, stole it, uh, they stole the wrong vial. Now they gotta chase him down and get it because it's in him mm-hmm. and he's hearing a voice and he doesn't know from where, <laughs> you know. Is somebody talking to me? Who's there? You know. Anyway, they cut all that out. <laughs> oh, man. Hollywood screenwriters. Wait, do you have a title for the new version of Interface you're working on? Mm, not yet. I do, but I don't want to. You don't want to say it, okay? Uh, right. So you are still uh, writing and everything over there. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, it's it's very current, and uh, mm-hmm. and I'm going to use my son's. Oh, techni- yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just nice. realized I can see a drone uh, on the oh, desk yeah. behind you. <laughs> That's when I crashed and lost. Okay. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not a great drone pilot, unfortunately. So, well, I- I'm sorry. I am working on something new, which is called the Copa, which is the story of my father who created the Copacabana nightclub in New York. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that New York it. Noir, 1940, in which oh, a lot wow. of strange, thing hap- strange things happen. Uh, so it's like Rick's Place, only in New York. Oh, that's cool. It's funny. Ironically, I just rewatched the, or just watched the director's cut of Coppola's Cotton Club. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Cotton Club was was okay. That was up, up in 125th Street. The Coppola was right down on 60th. And of course, it was run by uh, his backer was the Godfather. Yeah, I was going to wow. say. Yeah. So, oh wow! So, uh, when you, are you writing this as a another feature? A long form, long form TV, and I'm actually doing a graphic screenplay out of it. Oh, that's cool. Nice. I, uh, I think I've invented a new literary form called the graphic <laughs> screenplay. Oh, screenplay. <laughs> yeah, because. You know, uh, if you write a screenplay, nobody reads it. You can't sell it. You can't go to a bookstore. Nobody yeah. wants to read a screenplay. The only people who read screenplays are the people whose job is to say no. <laughs> it's not really a good demo for writing a screenplay. There's no reason to write one. You should either write a novel or a, a menu. or a... <laughs> So I uh, did an experiment. I took uh, Treasure Island. I said, I wonder how many shots are in Treasure Island. If you sh- if you shot it, take a guess. Hmm. Hundreds, I would assume. Well, <laughs> what I what I what a graphic screen a graphic novel is maybe 20, 30 pages, hand drawn, bad color. <laughs> of each page has from one to six different little uh, frames of hmm. different sizes and different aspect ratios on it. A graphic screenplay is full frame, full color, 3D, with poser figures, who are lifelike, semi-lifelike figures, against a 3D background, which you you can do using very simple uh, software, like uh, Keynote, for instance. Hmm. And so I did it to see so you haven't answered the question how many shots do you think i can't even begin i, to can't, guess. I, I know <laughs> same here i will tell you 
in this particular one, 1500. Oh, wow. So it took me a while to do that. And now I'm doing it with the Copa, which is long form, and I've got 2,700 shots so far. Mm -hmm. So that's why I've been, haven't been out of the house for three years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be an interesting story. I mean, yeah, coming yeah from, I hope that. Yeah. Because, uh, like, uh, the Cotton Club, as I mentioned, is a very interesting but flawed film that I feel like now would be better served as like a Netflix limited series. Yeah, uh, and it's also, you know, it's the cliche, the girl and the trumpet player against the gangster. Yeah. I got mm -hmm. that. It's just one of the stories I got. But I got uh, Joe Adonis and uh, Benji Siegel. Uh, anyway, and what did you say the title of it is? The Copa. Oh, the, the Copa. Copa? Yeah. It's in Green Book. You've seen Green Book? I have not seen it. I, but, I mean, I know, I know what the Copa yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The Barry Manilow song, too. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the <laughs> disco Copa. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> For the kids out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So. Uh, well, I think that is a good place to wrap things okay. up. Chip, thank you so much for coming yes, on. Yes, appreciate uh, it. Some recommend. great stories. Yeah, go to his website, chipproser.com. Yeah. Uh, because you got other, I mean, you even have something on there about the Copa, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You can see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm definitely. Most, most of my stuff is, is on there in one form or another. So I'm definitely going to go check out the Orson Welles. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan of. Yes. Uh, yeah. that, there's that book, Lunches with Orson. I don't know if you uh -huh. know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this full is. Full of after, him being. After, after Orson has lunch and do bottles of Pui Fui Set. <laughs> yeah, shows up to do quote-unquote yeah. work. You have, to, um, you have to assign four uh, uh, grip, grips to keep them upright. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. Well, thank you so much okay. for coming on and sharing yes. your, I'm uh, sure, semi-painful. Uh, yeah, send memories. it straight to the lawyers, will you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and before we fully wrap things up here, um, this little bit you're hearing right now, Steve and I are actually recording after we finished the episode with Chip because we realized that we forgot to do our outro. Um, and because we're going back and recording this, we figured we might as well throw in a few details that we realized uh, didn't actually come up or we did not give in the episode to give a little more context. Kind of the most important one being uh, Scott Bartlett, who was the guy that Francis Ford Coppola wanted to direct in her face, uh, who was, how would you describe him, Steve? He was like then a very well-known experimental filmmaker. He made like crazy. Yes, he made, yeah, very, yeah, like experimental films. And if you know experimental films, you'll know that they don't really have a story. It's just imagery. And I have a quote here that can kind of sum up um, what kind of stuff he was doing. And this was a quote of him referring to the 1960s in San Francisco. And, it, and he said, we dropped acid, saw God, saw God and cosmic order. And I was drawn to this, to this idea of expressing this vision on film. For a year, I made film loops for all the local light shows. It played on hundreds of weekend concerts and around the country. And the images became icons of our time and it began to define our generation. And so what he pretty much was doing was he was 
he was he was shooting these film loops, having them play, and then when he started making his when he was making a lot of his experimental films back in the '60s, he also was feeding these film loops into video effect banks. And so on YouTube, you can watch one of his movies. It's like the only one you can really find, and it's called Off On. It's one word, and I think you'll totally get the expression, the feeling of what kind of films he was doing. There, it's it's only ten minutes. There's no dialogue. There's no story. It's just imagery to like drone music. Yeah, and he, both Coppola and George Lucas were big fans of him. Which, uh, if you listen to our recent unmade George Lucas episode, uh, we kind of talk about in that the sort of student films that Lucas was doing. Um, especially the original THX that inspired the feature version. Uh, they're very experimental, especially visual, just lots of like, yeah, getting that quite avant-garde, but it's definitely, he was more strange art house uh, in his origins back then. Um, and it seemed like Coppola was always trying to find something for him to do. Uh, and it's funny because on Wiki, I found it both on Wikipedia and on the Carnegie Museum of Art website in their little bio for Scott Bartlett, they refer to a movie called Inner Seed that he was yeah. trying to do with Zoetrope for years that was going to start star William Hurt before he was famous. I'm always wondering if that's a typo when they're referring to Interface uh, just because it's so similar sounding. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's another movie that wasn't made. I'm kind of curious on that, too. I've been re I've been looking it up because now I'm fascinated by it. <laughs> another movie that wasn't made, and I have not found anything on that yet, to be honest. So, um, Yeah, and uh, it seems like the only like mainstream thing that Coppola or Lucas were ever really found for him to do, he did some work on Altered States, speaking of William Hurt, um, and he also did... He worked on a more American Graffiti, which was the sequel to George Lucas's American Graffiti. Uh, and there's a lot of like kind of weird montage stuff and strange images that'll come up here and there that I'm, I'm assuming he worked on. That's what he's credited on as montage designer. Um, but figured it'd be good to give some context on this guy because I know Chip... Uh, <laughs> Not, was not happy with this guy's involvement <laughs> and referred to him as Coppola's cocaine dealer. Uh, and maybe he did give Coppola cocaine. But we don't know. We weren't there. But he also was an important filmmaker at the time in his own right. And I, I can see why, given what the script was and how revolutionary it was in its concept, that Coppola mm -hmm. thought this would be this would be a cool guy to do. This could finally be the thing that would allow Scott Bartlett to make a semi-mainstream movie. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense now, like in this one piece of research I found that it was gonna, Interface was gonna be shot on videotape and, you know, combine complex visual graphics and film slides and video. And I guess they actually, for like three days, they hung out at Coppola's house. I, you know, I wish I would have known this when we were doing the episode to ask him uh, with Todd Rudgrain and another video artist and they were experimenting. They were and like Chip doing- was there, you mean? Or? Yeah, and there was a photo of him there and I'm bummed I didn't find this information right before the episode. I would well, love maybe, to know what- Maybe Scott brought some cocaine. Maybe that's, yeah, how, that whole, <laughs> that's how that whole idea got exactly. going. 
But anyway, but I, but I'm I, I do you know I am happy Chip got to tell his story. It's a he's a very fascinating guy. Uh, and what was the other thing you wanted to bring up? Oh yeah, just another tragic thing about this project for Chip because I, I don't know he he seemed really interesting cat and it, it's pr- pretty wild that like I don't know there's this somewhat famous article that was written in ni- in 1983 for American Film Magazine. And so what the author did, he asked 45 studio insiders to name the best unproduced screenplays. And out of 62 scripts, 10 were chosen for the article. And 10 were made, I mean, out of the 10, five were made, five weren't made. And out of the ones that were made was At Close Range, Jacob's Ladder, Miracle Mile, The Princess's Bride, and Total Recall. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> and Interface was one of the scripts mentioned in these 10 best produced, unproduced scripts ever. And uh, yeah, that kind of pained me because, you know, he had no chance of getting it made after Coppola sold it to, uh, what was it, Paramount. They, wouldn't, they won't let it go and they still, you know, have it. And that's kind of a shame because seeing how all these uh, majorities of the movies were made and that one is kind of was held hostage. That, yeah. That, Ah, kind of rough. <laughs> He's led an interesting life. I was also going to say, um, I haven't re-listened to the episode since we recorded it yet. So, but my memory of it was it's just kind of offhandedly tossed out there the fact that Chip's dad founded the Copacabana, um, which sounds like a crazy thing to say, but I just just to confirm for people that is true. His dad was a guy <laughs> named Monty Proser who founded a lot of nightclubs many of which were uh, secretly funded by the mob <laughs> was kind of his whole legacy. But uh, yeah. interesting backstory there. I hope he can do something with his, his idea to tell the Copacabana story. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I hope we can get him back on the show. I did find a couple other projects of his that might be interesting. So hopefully in the future, we'll see. And, and we apologize for all you big trouble and little China fans out there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to hear the chips unkind words about the original. Uh, I will say it was funny when we started the zoom before we began recording and I was saying that I think people would be really interested. It was like, basically, why do you want to talk about big trouble, and little China too? And I'm like, I think people will be really interested in it. And he's like, will they, <laughs> did anyone ever see that movie? And I'm like, yeah, it became like a beloved cult <laughs> classic. And he's like, what really? Yeah, he's really, he was unaware of that. I mean, I mean, I guess at the time it didn't do so well. And maybe that's still sticking with him. Um, yeah, not sure. Well, especially, you know, from his perspective, he was working on it in the 90s. And I feel a lot, especially a lot of these 80s era movies that went on to become real big, beloved, not even kind of beyond cult classics. They just got discovered later. You know, Fred Decker yeah. and Monster Squad always talks about it. He didn't know anyone liked it until the mid aughts. Uh, when it yeah. was coming up on its 20th anniversary. So so Chip would have been working on Big Trouble during a phase where, I guess, I, I, still, I just feel like it was on TV all the time. In my mind, that was a big, relevant movie, even though I know it lost a lot of money. Yeah, well, we were also kids when it came out, so it was <laughs> yeah. really aimed for us, and it was, you know, but yeah. <laughs> all right, well, now we will do our outro that we forgot to do last time. Uh, you can find us on... Best Movies Never Made on Instagram and at Never Made Film on Twitter. 
Uh, we post a lot of concept art and script pages and other fun things. Steve will probably post some pictures from that article he was just re just referencing. Uh, and you should also get for free the Electric Now app, which uh, is a way completely free. You just get it wherever you get apps and you can watch movies and TV shows. And more importantly, you can watch video of us and our handsome faces recording these podcasts along with our sister shows like the 430 Movie and Inglorious Trexperts. I want to give a special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone at Electric Surge Network, including our producers Mark Altman and Dean Devlin. And until next time, this is Josh Miller. Steven Scarlatta. Saying we will not see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.